The reading of God's word, this is in Psalm chapter 89, uh, 1 through 18, 38 through 45, and then 52. So it's not a typo. When it says zero, it's the weird subscription you get, like the heading. I was hesitant there, yes, yes. Pew Bible, did you already say the Pew Bible? Yeah, I did. Okay, here we go. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Yahweh forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build you a throne for all generations. It's a lot. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when, it, when its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of your strength. By your favor, favor, our horn is exalted. For your shield belongs to Yahweh, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Salah. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen. And amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who would like to go for, for children's worship, they can line up over here with Mr. Jonathan and our crew. If you are, you're visiting with any little ones, uh, and we just ask that one parent get them signed in with our volunteers over there in children's worship. In 586 B.C., The Babylonian Empire tore down the walls of Jerusalem. They unseated the king. They leveled the temple. They slaughtered many as they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. 
And God's people were carried off as servants to a foreign nation. This seemed like a reversal of everything God had done. It seemed like the undoing of their freedom from captivity in Egypt. It seemed like the unraveling of the establishment of the people of Israel. And in the middle of all this carnage and confusion, we meet Ethan, a worship leader in Israel who knows the Lord. He knows the the promises that God has made. And so now Ethan is a man living in tension. Tension between the promises of God that he knows and the reality of what's happening around him. No doubt we all have seasons in life that are like this. When it seems like God has forgotten us. When it seems that God has forgotten to keep his promises. Because regardless of what he's said or what he's done in the past, our present experience feels very different. It's tension. And Ethan gives voice to that tension. Look again at verses 38 through 45. He says, but now you, he's talking to God, you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed, your king. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruin, and all who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. There's something notable about how Ethan complains to God. That's what he's doing here. He's complaining to God about the things that have happened. And it's notable. Ethan's complaint to God in Psalm 89 is voiced as a dissonant harmony to the melody of his faith. If you simply look at the structure of this psalm, If you look at the way that Ethan has written it, verses 1 through 37 are all praise. He goes on for 37 verses singing about God's covenant love, singing about God's faithfulness to his promises. He speaks of God's righteousness and God's glory. And in the midst of all this praise, then Ethan voices his concerns, his questions, his doubts, his fears, his complaints. And after all those complaints, starting in verse 38, how does the psalm end in verse 52? Rich just read it for us. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. So the the psalm begins with praise and it ends with praise. Which means it begins and ends with faith. This psalm is largely a statement of faith. Faith is the main melody line in the song, but with that overarching picture in place, you sort of get to the bridge of the song. I love bridges in songs. I mean, I guess they're fine in like architecture too, but bridges in songs are great because you get this, this other harmony, this other point that's being made, and that's what we see in this song. He has his faith. It's there, but his experiences in life 
challenge that faith. And what we see here is the dividing line between faith and experience. Ethan's living in exile. He has witnessed horrible things during the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. He's now living in a pagan land. He lives among a people who do not know God, who do not honor God, who do not live in God's way. His experiences seem like God has not just forgotten his promises, but his people. That's Ethan's experience. That is what he feels. But that doesn't throw his faith out the window. His faith is still there. And in all this, I think we we, we find a helpful truth. Feelings and experiences are temporary. Biblical faith, though, is of a different nature. It's kind of ironic. Um, Our church is, what's the name of our church? Anybody know? That's right, it's Faith. Faith Presbyterian Church. But I wonder if you know what faith actually is. I wonder if you know what it means to trust God, to believe in Jesus, to to have faith in his promises. Many people equate faith with a feeling about God, uh, with a feeling about the Bible, or about spirituality more generally. And it plays out like this. When I look at the world and I see beauty and I see order, I I, I feel like there, there just must be some greater cause out there. There must be some creator out there. That's, that's one way that faith and feelings get kind of mixed up. Here's another. My life is so blessed. That must mean that there is a God out there that loves me and is for me. It's feelings talking again. <coughs> Here's another one. When I pray, when I read the Bible, when I go to church... Sorry, I got a cough. I just feel better. I just feel good when I do these spiritual things. That's all feeling talk. That's not faith. Because what happens when you're not feeling it? When you don't see beauty and order in the world anymore, and it's just a mess. Now you start to wonder if there is a God out there. What about when life's not so great and you don't feel so blessed and things are not so good in your personal life and if there's a God out there, he must not be a good one, right? The feelings suddenly make our faith start collapsing. What about when praying doesn't give you the warm fuzzies anymore? What about when you read the Bible and it feels dry? Ethan is decisively not feeling it. Nothing in his life feels good. Nothing feels right. It either feels like there's no God or no good God. That's how he feels. But his faith endures. His faith is still there. And that argues to me that faith is not a feeling. Well, faith's not a feeling. What is it? Faith is not a feeling. Rather, it is the difficult process of of wrestling with God's word and our experiences until we learn to trust God's character because of his historical works. I know that's long. We're about to take half our sermon to unpack those, those two things. Now, in an earlier draft of my sermon, I, I didn't say that faith is a, the difficult process of wrestling with God's word. I said that it's the difficult process of wrestling with God 
and our experiences. I'm going to throw back to Jacob, and we're going to have a whole thing there. But I threw that out, and I changed it to wrestling with God's word. Why? Because I'm intentionally, this morning, arguing against an over-sentimentalized version of Christian faith. How do you know what God is like? How can you know who God is? Where is God shown to us? God most clearly reveals himself in this book. This is the means by which he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And what that means is that the scriptures are the boxing ring. When your life and your feelings and your experiences seem to argue that there's no God, there's no good God, or that he doesn't keep his promises and all that, we have to go to the scriptures. This is the place where the Holy Spirit engages us. What I don't want you to do when I'm arguing against is just go and think about it. Just go think about your feelings. Go think about what you know about God. No, go to the scriptures. This is the boxing ring. You have to take your experiences to the word and make sense of them there. Now, we could let the tension of this life just pass, right? We could just say, well, I know I'm experiencing a hard time right now. I don't know how that squares with there being a God, a God who keeps his promises and all that. I'm just not going to engage those two things. I'm not going to try to reconcile them to each other. Lots of people do that. Tons of people do that. We just put our faith over here. We put our doubts and our pains and our struggles over here. And we never force the two to fight it out. What happens in that circumstance? You don't trust God in the end. If you don't wrestle with the hard question of who is God... What does he actually promise to do if you don't wrestle with the experiences and feelings and doubts you're having? What will happen is that your faith will become weaker and weaker and weaker until it blows away like chaff in the wind. I don't have some uh, mystical ability to peer into your heart or soul and know what doubt, what fear, what grief you're dealing with whether something very personal in your life, something in your family, something broader in our culture. Don't leave it be, though. Don't just let it sit out there. Monday through Saturday, if you're living with struggle, if you're living with pain, if you're living with fear, don't come in here and pretend like that's not a thing. You have to take that fear, you have to take that doubt, that struggle to the scriptures and duke it out. That's what Ethan does in our text. He takes what the Bible says about God in one hand, and he takes his feelings and his experiences in the other, and he wrestles. And in this psalm, we hear the song of Ethan wrestling. And faith is found in the wrestling. But what's the end goal here? The hope is that as you are honest with yourself about your struggles, your fears, and your doubts, and as you're honest with what the Bible says about God, that in the end you'll start to trust him. You'll trust his character because of the things that he has always done. So, often I ask questions and I want the kids to answer. This is not for the kids because this is a tricky one, but the kids need to listen. So, grown-ups, when you all help me, what does the word character mean? 
like in the context of this, not like a video game character. We learn to trust God's character. What is character? Say it again, Rich. Ah, very good. How you act when no one is around. Why, why would you answer it that way? Pontificate, brother. Great. Everybody. Great. So your character, you can see someone's character if you can see what they do when they're by themselves. Because that is sort of an unfiltered expression of who they are. That's a great answer, Rich. I'll just skip this next paragraph. <laughs> when you talk about someone's character, you're talking about what kind of person they really are. What are they like? What qualities are true of them? And how do you know a person's character? Rich is right. Look at what they do consistently. Look at what they say consistently. Jesus himself said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks, right? Well, God's the same way. What's God like? How do we know his character? You have to look at the things that he has done. You have to look backward in history and see what God has done. Now... You can see what God has done in your life. You can see what God has done in the lives of other Christians. That's hard to interpret, though, authoritatively. It's hard to know exactly what God is doing in our lives. It's hard to to, to see that super clearly. So if you want to look back into history to see what God has done, the best place to look is here. And that's how we do this wrestling. We look back at what God has done in Scripture... We consider what those actions say about his character. And the question that emerges is this. Can I trust that kind of God? Can I trust a God who acts in those ways, who speaks in those ways? Is he of a trustworthy character? Ethan wrestles with the character of God in our psalm. Let's take a look at it. Verses 8 through 12. Y'all get what I'm laying down here? Is this making sense? Yeah? I think I saw one person nod. You can say no if you're lost. No? Okay, cool. All right. I will pay attention as we're going through this part, and I'll see if I can make it a little little clearer. Okay. So look at verses 8 through 12. All right. Ethan says, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with all your faithfulness around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Okay, so Ethan has just witnessed Jerusalem get destroyed. People he loves have been killed. People who served God faithfully, some of them, are killed in this process. And they're dragged away into captivity. And now they're living in poverty. They're living under the hand of a harsh master. And it seems like God's a liar. Or he's not there. How does he reconcile those two things? How does he come to terms with who God really is? He looks backward in these four verses to two past historical works of God. The first one is this, creation. Ethan looks at the heavens and the earth. 
He looks at the mountains, Herman and Tabor that we read there, those are mountains. He looks at the seas that God has formed. The scripture says God made them. Ethan hears that, and that tells him something about God. What does his creating work tell us about him? Let's do, let's, let's do it together. What's he like if he can make everything? Powerful? What's another one? Extraordinary. Creative. Great. So, yeah, we can look at that thing that God did. He made everything, and it tells us about him. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's creative. But there's a second historical act that Ethan looks at here. So look at verses 9 and 10. It's kind of odd. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Who's this Rahab character? So this is a reference to a prophecy of Isaiah that describes Egypt as a great dragon named Rahab that God destroyed. So Ethan, he's talking about when God saved Israel from captivity in Egypt hundreds of years before. He defeated the great dragon Rahab. And how did God do it? You remember the end of the story? So he parted the Red Sea, the waters that he created. He parted the Red Sea. Israel passed through on dry ground. And as Egypt's army pursued, what happened? Boom! Kills them all. The great dragon Rahab is defeated, destroyed. Okay, with that in mind, let's go back to verses 9 and 10 and and read it again. See how he kind of very beautifully weaves these two historical actions of God. He weaves them together poetically in verses 9 and 10. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So as Ethan is thinking back on what God has done in the past, in Scripture, what does he remember? First creation. The God who created the waters. You remember Genesis 1-2? What does Genesis 1-2 says? The, the Holy Spirit of God hovered over the primordial chaos of the earth. Before any creatures had been made, it was just crazy, chaotic water. It says the Holy Spirit hovered over it. And what does he bring out of it? Order and life out of the chaos. That same God set Israel free through water and then destroyed their captors with water. And on that day, Israel sang on the edge of that shore while Rahab's draconic corpse floated in the water. And they praised Yahweh for his saving work. So Ethan reflects on these things that God has done in the past. And what does he learn from it? What do these historical acts of God long, long ago tell him about God's character? Look at verses 13 through 18. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Like those people singing on the edge of the Red Sea. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face. Who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted for our shield belongs to Yahweh, our King, to the Holy One 
of Israel. Ethan's looking at his experience and it makes no sense what's happening here. God's people are imprisoned. God's people have been killed. God's people have been carried away. What does he do? He goes back to the scriptures with those doubts and with those fears and says, what has God done in the past? What's he done? The God who made all things saved us powerfully. And if he can do that then, he can do it again. If Israel long ago worshipped God on the banks of the Red Sea, we will worship God again. God is creator. God is savior. And he will keep his promise to his people. So here's the point. Ethan doesn't look deeper and deeper and deeper into his pain, into his experience. He looks backwards. He looks back at what God has done. So that he can know what God is like. And based upon that, it enables him to trust God in the present. Look at his remarkable statement of faith from the beginning of the psalm. Verses 1 and 2. Again, this is after he's witnessed so much death. This is when he's living in captivity. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Why does he say that his faithfulness will be established in the heavens? When I was reading this, I thought that was kind of strange. Why? Because when he looks at the earth, he doesn't see God's faithfulness. When he looks at the earth, he sees pain. He sees death. He sees chaos. And he says, there must be some higher truth. I need to be able to look above this fray. And what does he find fixed in the heavens? God's faithfulness. Do you realize the utter importance of God's faithfulness? God's faithfulness means that he's always the same. (coughs) It means he doesn't lie. He always acts the same way. If God is not always the same way, We can't trust him. You realize that? If God is not utterly consistent, we can't trust him. But when you look at the scriptures and you see how God acts time and time and time again, when you observe his legacy, his history, his name, you will see that his faithfulness is fixed in the heavens. Because what happens? Do they stay in Babylon? No, no, they're set free over and over and over. The creator proves himself to be savior. And that means we can trust him. Christian faith is essentially allowing God's character expressed in scripture and demonstrated in history to shape our perspective and response to the present moment. Now you may protest. Wait, I thought Christian faith was believing that Jesus died for our sins and came back from the dead. Uh, that's, that's pretty much what I just said here. Because those were the things that he promised to do. He promised to send his son. He promised to bring resurrection through him. The Christian faith is not just agreeing to a list of statements. It's not mental assent to some notion of Jesus dying for our sins. You realize that, right? That Christian faith is not just like this intellectual exercise. No, trusting God 
is looking at what God has done and therefore trusting him with your life now and forever. When Ethan looked backwards at God's actions, he thought of creation and he thought of salvation from Egypt. God's actions at those two times drove Ethan to trust God's character. What historical events should we look to to show us God's character? We can look at creation. <coughs> we can look at captivity from e- or salvation from Egypt. But above them all, we look to the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because in those events, we see God's character more clearly than anywhere else. The gospel is not just about you being saved from your sins. The gospel is the expression of the timeless character of God. When we look at what Jesus did, it tells us something powerful about God. So we look there to find the character of God. We can look throughout the scriptures. We can look at creation. We can look at Egypt. We can look at the history of God's people. But the first and most primary place to see the character of God displayed is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, let's put these two things in contrast once more. Your experiences and your feelings on the one side, your faith on the other. Are you reconciling the two? Are you intentionally wrestling with God's word and with your experience so that you are learning day by day to trust God more? Do you have a deep sense that God's faithfulness is fixed in the heavens because of what he has done in the past, because he's done it time and time again throughout history? Do you trust God? And really for all of us, because there's a spectrum, we're all growing in our trust of God. How do we grow to trust God more? You can grow to trust God first by meditating on the historical actions of God toward his people. And secondly, recognizing that they are a demonstration of his unchanging nature. Pastorally, I'm very concerned about this. That you, as a Christian, are walking with doubt and fear about your future about the world's future, and you're not taking those fears, you're not taking those doubts, you're not taking those struggles and and, and reconciling them with the character of God. Who do you trust? Who do we trust? This is why we read the Bible as Christians. This is why we teach the Bible at FPC, so that you know who God is and what he has done. We must become a student of the character of God, digging into what he has done in history so that we can see who he is timelessly. And you may not know where to start. You don't know anything about Egypt. You don't know anything about Babylon. You know anything about that stuff. That's fine. Start with Jesus in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, and in the work of Jesus. You will see who God is through what he has done. You'll see his character most clearly in the person of Jesus. Can you trust him? That's the question. But then, once we begin to get a vision of who God is, how do we grow in our trust? Worshiping him. Worshiping God for his character. Let it not be lost on us that Psalm 89 is a worship song. Ethan wrote this as a song of faith despite his experiences on earth. When we just aren't feeling it, 
When our experiences and our feelings don't feel aligned with God's promises and God's goodness, what should we do? We should sing. We should worship. We should remind ourselves of what God has done and of who God is through worship. Now, that might seem counterintuitive because when I'm struggling, when I'm doubting, sometimes the last thing I want to do is sing about God. But I need to. I need to sing about the cross. I need to sing about Egypt. I need to sing about the God who is creator and savior. And these Advent songs we sing like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, these are like songs from exile. These songs are written for us to pour out our faith and our grief together. Because in these historical things that God has done that are baked into these songs, we find who God is. So we worship, and worship strengthens our faith. But here's the final way we can strengthen our trust in God, by allowing God's faithfulness to be our anchor amidst the knowns and unknowns of our present and our future. This is what Ethan is doing in this psalm. He's remembering God's acts and God's character for 37 verses. He's worshiping God, and then he takes all that truth and applies it to his present circumstance. Does Ethan know how it's all going to work out? Not a chance. Not a chance. Ethan may have died in exile for all we know. He may have died with these questions still in his mind. But he's still able to end his psalm, blessed be Yahweh forever. The faithfulness of God is fixed in the heavens. The faithfulness of God becomes his anchor, his constant, the buoy that keeps him above the fray. The faithfulness of God should be our prime assumption. This should be our orienting principle to reality, the lens through which we interpret everything in our lives. That statement's huge. I don't know if you realize the gravity of it. The faithfulness of God should be the foundation of how you do your work. The faithfulness of God should be the foundation of how you make decisions for your family. The faithfulness of God should be the prime grounds for your financial decisions, for your health, for your friendships. For the problems that you solve on a daily basis, the faithfulness of God should be our basis for life. So that when difficulty comes, what do we respond with? Who has God always been? What has God always done? What can I trust in this moment? Now, is that easy? No. That's why we got this psalm. It's to help us. Christians, for thousands of years, have endured persecution, war, hardship, and pain. Christians, on a daily basis, die of starvation and thirst. And in places like the the, the fellow I was talking about earlier, like in that country, people die for being Christians. How? How? How do they endure that experience where it seems like God's not keeping his promises? It's because they know what he's done. It's because they know who he is. How do we do the same when problems come into our life? We look backwards at who God is. What kind of God is this that could send his son to die? What kind of God 
is this that would die for our sins? What kind of God is this that would raise him from the dead and promise to make all things right? If that's who Yahweh is, you can trust him. You can trust him even with your momentary afflictions. True, enduring faith trusts God's timeless character because of his historical works. It's not a feeling. So we don't meditate on our present pain and allow it to define reality for us. No, we look backward to the historical works of God, most clearly in the work of Jesus Christ, and we learn from those actions what God is like. And what's he like? He tells us. Look, verses 6 through 17 with me. Who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still it. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Mount Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to Yahweh, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Those who know this God and walk in the light of his faith, face, we are blessed. Even when the world is crumbling, we are blessed to know him. Even when everything in our life seems to say that we are not blessed. Brothers and sisters, we can trust God. He's proven himself time and time and time again. Meditate on what he has done. Remember what he is like. Worship that God and take the truth of who he is and apply it to your present circumstance so that you can trust him with your present and with your future. He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who are here whose present circumstance is painful and confusing. They're weary, sad, angry. Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would give them the courage to not ignore that. But they would take those feelings and the things they've experienced to your word. And ask you the hard question. Who are you? God. What kind of God are you like? Because our experiences often say terrible things about you. And yet in your word we find that your faithfulness is fixed in the skies. May your faithfulness 
be our prime assumption, be the basis of reality in our minds. May it be the joy and the melody of our song. Teach us to trust.